Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by David Zumwalt, President and CEO of the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association, or WISPA, which represents fixed wireless providers in the U.S., We discuss the important role that WISPs and unlicensed spectrum play in closing the digital divide and where WISPA takes issue with the NTIA's rules for the federal government's multi-billion dollar broadband infrastructure programs. We also get into the challenges of participating in the FCC's broadband data collection process and more. David, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It is my pleasure. So before we get started, um, you'll just to start off, really, can you tell me a bit uh, about your your own background in the industry itself um, and what led you to joining WISPA? So I've spent most of my career in the telecommunications industry, going back to the earliest days, really, of competitive telecommunications. So at the time that AT&T was divesting and we were beginning to see the emergence of companies like Sprint and MCI and others, the early cellular industry, um, I just was completely fascinated with the notion that we were seeing entrepreneurs emerge, we were seeing new technologies emerge, and these were developments that were really important to moving the information age forward and making possible the sorts of things that we're going to talk about today. Awesome. And so before you joined WISPA, the, your most recent role was in the U.S. Virgin Islands, correct? Right. I was uh, the chief operating officer of a major WISP in the Virgin Islands nine to 10,000 customers, and the entire territory has about 100,000 people in it. So a significant player in the Virgin Islands. And I had known both of the major partners for a number of years because previously I was involved in economic development in the Virgin Islands. That's the one time I stepped out of the telecom career and looked at ways of making public-private partnerships work. Mm-hmm. So we were in the Virgin Islands doing that for nine years, and I got to know the telecom industry in the Virgin Islands, and that really led the opportunity to uh, to join with that WISP. Very interesting. And and just, I, I think it's an interesting background as it leads you into joining WISP, but what was the digital divide like uh, when you were working there in, in the Virgin Islands? Well, one of the fascinating things that brought me to the Virgin Islands was that it happens to be geographically located in the perfect spot to bring submarine optical fiber cables together that form the backbone of the global internet. Mm -hmm. And so uh, fiber systems that went to North America, Central America, South America, and Europe all found a place to uh, come ashore and be switched and repowered in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it's akin to the FedEx hub in Memphis. You might not know that your package is going through there, but it is. And the, the fastest path between North and South America financial markets, New York and San Paulo, Brazil, West St. Croix and the U.S. Virgin Islands. The relevance of that is that the entire Caribbean has been concerned for many years with providing economic opportunity for kids who are growing up there. And in many, many cases, they have to leave the islands and come and pursue a career stateside, and then they can't get back if they are in technology or they're in finance or in some of the other industries that can really help diversify an economy. And, and so the digital divide issue was uh, uh, interesting in the Virgin Islands because they were arguably awash in the largest concentration of bandwidth in the Western Hemisphere other than New York City. But because those fiber landings had been developed uh, for the purposes of the global internet, 
and not to serve the people of the Virgin Islands. The question was, how can we leverage that asset and turn it into something that makes it possible for us to develop our economy, create educational opportunities for our kids, and do so uh, in a community that frankly has, I think, about half of its residents living at or below the poverty line. So WISPs and the ISP communities uh, there in the Virgin Islands were very important to um, uh, moving connectivity forward in a way that helped transform or move the needle on that economy. I know that's a long answer, and my friends would certainly tell you that I'm brevity challenged, but the context was important <laughs> because that's why I ended up there and how I ended up having some fun there. Not at all. I thought that was a really illuminating answer. It was exactly why I asked the question. So thank you. Um, but that leads us to where you are now. You And I think you've literally been in your role as uh, president and CEO of WISPA for two months, like today. Uh, today is August 1st. So I, I mean, I could I could have that a little bit wrong, but I think it's about two months. 61 or 62. Yes. All right. So all right. Fair. All yeah. right. Fair enough to, <laughs> to be exacting. Um, so how is it going and uh, what is your overall vision for the organization? Uh, so uh, it's going as well as anyone would expect to be going after 60 days. But I, <laughs> I have been in the industry for a while and it's interesting to see how things come around and go around. Early in my career, I had an opportunity to work on a challenge that the FCC was facing in the 12 gigahertz band when a brand new industry called direct broadcast satellite wanted to get some spectrum to be able to use for DISH and <clears throat> direct TV or, or what became those companies. And they were having trouble clearing that spectrum for uh, use for satellite uh, providers because terrestrial operators were there. We fast forward now and now there's a discussion about providing more spectrum back to terrestrial users in the 12 gigahertz band. So it's taken a while for the circle uh, to, uh, 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 to present itself that way, but that's commonly what we see when we're talking about spectrum policy and we see innovations in the way people are using connectivity. And so when I think about you know, WISPA, we're, we're certainly advocating for uh, the, uh, uh, the industry that we serve, which is the wireless internet service provider primarily but more specifically, uh, WISPs are in the vanguard of uh, meeting the needs in the digital divide. They're the ones who've rushed toward unserved and underserved areas in the past. <clears throat> They're the ones who have put their own private capital to work. Uh, they've established themselves in their communities. And, um, and now that we have a, a national focus on closing the digital divide, we certainly wanna make sure that WISPA is leading the charge to support the WISC community because they're the ones who've always done it. And if we're going to close the digital divide, this is an exciting time to be a part of it. So a lot of the last year's uh, advocacy efforts from organizations like yours and, and the various trade organizations that represent the various technologies and, and various ISPs uh, have been focused at, on the federal level, on uh, that $65 billion worth of funding that was getting into the infrastructure bill. And basically all of the rules have now been written at the federal level. Surely there's some more nitpicking to do um, with legislators and various federal agencies. But uh, certainly there's now going to be a shift in where associations um, or advocacy efforts are going to be focused. So where are your, where's your focus going to be for WISPA? And we can certainly pivot and talk some more detail about those rules that were written um, and the impact on WISPs as well. No, you're right. The, uh, historically, the advocacy has been primarily in Washington, D.C., because that's where 
the uh, decision making and the policy making has been uh, vested. <clears throat> but it's appropriate that this move to the states because every state is different. <clears throat> One of the uh, the lessons from the past that I like to point to involves uh, uh, when the U.S. Geological Survey was getting started, the original head of the USGS was tasked with going out to the American West to look at its prospects for development. And he discovered very quickly that what worked in Delaware will not work in Wyoming or California or Nevada. And um, I won't go longer on the story. You can look that up if you're interested. But the gentleman's name is John Wesley Powell, a fascinating history. And so I think we're doing here by focusing uh, from a federal level on distributing funds to the states is that we're recognizing that states have different agendas because they're different. You know, the, uh, uh, the digital divide requirements are different. The way land is used is different. The population density, the way historically communities have developed and supported each other, it's all different, which means that to be successful in advocacy uh, for something like closing the digital divide, then we have to be an organization that is working very closely at the state level. And that's a huge challenge. Uh, but other organizations have done it and done it successfully. And so we're not the first to kind of crack this code, but it is important because uh, we cannot apply a one size fits all solution when we're working um, in, in uh, the various states. Do you feel like WISPs have a, a leg up in some states versus others, or is it really about, you know, the type of territory? Uh, it's a combination of both because this is inherently political. Mm -hmm. uh, some states are going to be more inclined to uh, uh, to support uh, in the public-private partnership world. They'll want to support a solution that has sort of a heavy emphasis on the public sector and the way the public sector would manage or, or handle uh, these sorts of affairs. This is classically, for example, what you find in a place like the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, other states are going to be I think more amenable to letting the private sector, if not lead, then certainly uh, have the private sector set priorities because uh, where they're both aligned, regardless of where they are politically, is that they want an opportunity to close the digital divide. And so each state's going to be bringing what it believes are the best approaches uh, to serve the people who live there. So um, you mentioned it can't be a one-size-fits-all solution. The legislation itself was tech-neutral. The as it worked its way through the rulemaking process, it got a little bit more fiber-focused. Um, but so, and I know WISPA has uh, weighed in on various elements of this already. But I'd love to hear from you just your reactions to the legislation, to the outcome of the rules, and where you still see opportunities for for WISPs anyway. So I'll preface by saying that I like NTIA from my earliest days in uh, the cellular industry. We were using radio propagation models that NTIA had either curated or developed their ITS uh, uh, department. So I like NTIA as an organization, um, but I don't really like the NOFO because mm -hmm. I think it's become, uh, there's the old uh, joke that a camel is a horse that was designed by a committee. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think the NOFO has ended up with some characteristics of that. Now, that's not to criticize anybody who's gone, uh, who was involved in doing it. I think it's a very tall order to come up with something that's going to work for everyone. But I do believe that there's some political influence uh, that is you know, tilting the scales heavily in favor of fiber. And the reality is fiber has a, a supply chain issue. It's expensive to deploy. The WISPs are already there. 
and WISPs are capable and in fact are delivering uh, today's definition of broadband, which is 100 over 20. Mm -hmm. um, so the opportunity for, uh, stated another way, if we just take it out of the personalities of the people who are involved, if you're trying to triage an emergency, you want the first responders to be the ones who are on the scene, mm -hmm. not something that's gonna take longer or you know, might be the long-term solution 30 years from now. And the, the folks who can triage are the WISPs. So uh, the fact that um, the NTI and NOFO um, excluded from its definition of reliable broadband service, wholly unlicensed spectrum to the end user uh, is problematic because that's where many of the WISPs live. Now there are things that they can do to uh, uh, kind of respond to that, but still that was an unfortunate and I think wholly unnecessary approach. It wasn't aligned with the original infra infrastructure act, uh, act itself. So yeah, I do have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. So let's actually talk a little bit about the role of unlicensed spectrum in closing the digital divide, because I, I know that that has been an issue for, for a lot of WISPs. Uh, I spoke with Matt Larson from Vista Beam uh, not too long ago uh, for this podcast, who spoke a bit about that. Um, what role is unlicensed spectrum playing in closing the digital divide and why is it so essential? So I'll start first from the vendor perspective. <clears throat> Equipment is readily available to be able to deploy in any market uh, where uh, unlicensed can be used. Uh, but it's also extremely flexible because it doesn't have a coordination act activity that's required in order to deploy it. So if you see an emerging need or there is an area that had not previously been identified or you're trying to solve for the growth in a community um, then you don't have to go through the process of engineering a path, going through the coordination notice, getting equipment that is tuned specifically for that spectrum. You also don't have the permitting that's associated with gaining access to pole attachments or bearing uh, any kind of wiring, including fiber. And so that's what I mean about first response. It's the ability to go out and deploy very, very quickly. And now, uh, because I'm anticipating questions that you, you might have or others who are listening might have, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the equipment that's out there is, uh, if not impervious to interference, then it can shift its utilization of spectrum if it recognizes that congestion is occurring in a part of the spectrum, say over here, and it can move away from that on the fly in a highly automated fashion. So the, uh, the tools that are available for unlicensed spectrum uh, are great in the sense that it can be deployed rapidly, it can be largely self-healing, uh, and it can set the stage for immediate coverage. And then if more service is needed later, that's when you have the time to go out and figure out what other kinds of technologies you roll out. Because when we think about WISP, they're not completely unlicensed spectrum. They're using fiber, they're using licensed spectrum appropriately, but in many cases to reach end users, especially in the communities like those that BEAD intends to serve, uh, unlicensed spectrum is the fastest, easy, easiest way to get there. And do you see any legitimate reason that it would be excluded apart from it, the lobbying effort? Well, when we talked to uh, <clears throat> NTIA about this, we had uh, a meeting among WISPA staff and the NTIA staff uh, in early July. And what they uh, told us was that uh, their concern was only about its future availability. Okay. In other words, you know, would there be, uh, you know, a possible day when um, unlicensed spectrum might not be available? But this begs the question in reverse that uh, included in the definition of reliable broadband service 
was DSL. Hmm. And I think that DSL probably has greater challenges to its availability over the next 10 years than unlicensed spectrum does. Yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, so that, that's kind of a conundrum. I don't think that that question has been fully answered. Okay, gotcha. Very interesting. So um, we've kind of covered some federal policies that would make it easier for WIS to participate in funding opportunities um, and and join in on this collective effort to close the digital divide. Um, but more locally speaking, um, and at the state level, what are some policies policies that make it easier and or harder for for WISPs to get internet deployed quickly and, and efficiently and and actually stay up and running? So it, it's going to vary from community to community, but sure. speaking of my uh, experience in the Virgin Islands, for example, uh, to deploy infrastructure, uh, backhaul, or anything that's going to have to be attached to something, you're dealing with whatever the permitting organization is, um, and they're going to have a legitimate interest in knowing what's being put up and does it comply with uh, the community's expectations for safety and performance. Um, there will certainly be uh, some competitive concerns if you're dealing with, for example, a pole attachment right to a telecommunications carrier, an existing incumbent carrier. Uh, that would be a concern. Um, you'll also have, uh, this isn't so much local, but this is something that I wanted to bring to light because I think this is important to the NOFO too. Sure. Uh, the NOFO anticipates that recipients of funding are going to have to uh, qualify for letters of credit which can be yeah. very, very difficult to do uh, for uh, even uh, extremely well-held and established uh, companies. And in the case of the U.S. Virgin Islands, when they went through this in uh, uh, 2019, 2020, 2021, in that time frame, there was a requirement that the banks that issued letters of credit be Weiss rated, which is a rating system for those banks. And there were no banks in Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands who had that rating, which meant mm -hmm that to qualify for a letter of credit to satisfy the FCC in this case, you'd have to work with a JP Morgan Chase or a company like that. And when you think about the WISP community, people who are used to working with community banks or banks in their states, they may have longstanding relationships with organizations that will vouch for their performance, but they may not be qualified to issue the letter of credit because of the requirements they're being put in place. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of backdoor way of saying that I think it's really important that from a federal government perspective that a great deal of flexibility is pushed through to the state level so that you know the legitimate concerns about financial performance, for example, can be handled by some reasonable approach that's going to work in the communities where uh, the BEAD recipients and hopefully you know our WISP uh, members uh, are operating. Mm -hmm. So those are Got some it. of the concerns, yeah. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the states are supposed to be writing their own plans. So I guess we'll find out just how much <laughs> they actually get to write them uh, versus ghost write them <laughs> with the NTIA. Um, we'll see. Um, so one other big thing that's going on uh, is that the FCC's broadband mapping effort is underway, uh, which impacts all uh, pretty much all of the ISPs, I guess, in your organization or close to it. Or I'm, I'm not sure if there's a cutoff for a certain number of subscribers. Um, so how is that going from uh, the, your, your point of view, your members' point of view? I think this is an area of great concern and great consternation across the board. Um, the, uh, the FCC is working hard to uh, uh, develop uh, this uh, broadband data uh, collection system. 
uh, there are clearly some issues. One of the issues that we navigated, for example, was the treatment of uh, uh, CBRS GAA spectrum. Um, it was originally sort of flip-flopping in the FCC between being treated as licensed or unlicensed, but we finally got a definitive clarification that that will be treated as licensed spectrum in addition to PALs. So that's a win for uh, our members. But that's the sort of confusion that has <clears throat> led to a great deal of frustration, especially since there may be funding decisions that are made even in this first round of um, mapping uh, uh, data that is provided, the uh, submissions of the BDC and 477 forms. So for example, one of the <clears throat> more recent ones that we've been dealing with has had to do with you know, what happens if you are um, reselling a wholesale service that you've obtained from someone else? This is classically done across the telecommunications industry. There are times when AT&T even is a retail provider and they're occasionally, in fact, a lot of times a wholesale provider too. So if you are <clears throat> buying from an upstream provider and are completing the BDC submission, and you're not just talking about the locations that you're covering, but you're also talking about your deployment. How do you characterize what's yours or what you control and how do you prevent it from being duplicated mm -hmm. with a submission that say an AT&T might put in place? Fortunately, we're beginning to get some clarity on this. These are uh, coming out in either frequently asked question uh, forms that the, uh, uh, the agencies are uh, publishing uh, another one that we're working hard to get clarified is this concept of hybrid licensed and unlicensed spectrum. We, we, we now know <clears throat> that uh, when unlicensed spectrum is discussed as not being included in reliable broadband service, what they mean is that last mile, the portion that's actually touching the subscriber. So if that portion is unlicensed, then that's what they mean by that. But what does hybrid licensed and unlicensed look like in a last mile scenario? In many cases, in a backhaul, you'll have hybrid systems, but um, hybrid and uh, an end-user delivery is a little uh, more unusual. There are ways that you can do it, obviously, but clarity on that's important. So when you put all of that kind of into the mix and then talk to members, even talk to vendors, even talk to other industry associations, um, <clears throat> these are some of the uh, points of clarity that I think everybody is clamoring for. And I think it's really important because we've got a deadline coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, David, for taking so much time to talk with me today. I really enjoyed it. I think WISPA is a great organization. You guys are doing awesome work and I'll be keeping up with you for sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you again, David, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landriel, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.